first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit MethodProducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hey, this is Brock McGillis, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Welcome, Brock, to my podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. No, thanks for coming on. Love talking hockey. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm sure you are in the minority in um, Northern California. <laughs> that is true. But we have our sharks, and they had a rough one last night. But we'll move on from that. Yeah. Um, I thought your goalie had a rough go. Those Which one? First... The one that played the first 10 minutes and let in three goals? or Yeah, that one. I don't get the backups, the backup, and, and Dell might become a good goalie but you can't thrust them like throw them into that in the middle of a you know three nothing drubbing and and expect anything from them um yeah. uh, what's the other guy's name i forget like i said i'm a canucks fan that's true but he um those first three shots should have been saved yeah it wasn't pretty no it wasn't at all so let's talk about you uh, what what is your earliest memory of being gay no, just earliest childhood memory. Well, um, I have two that I really um, recall. And one of them has to do with my sexuality and one of them um, just has to do with me. I was, and, and probably why I've become who I've become in terms of sports and whatnot. Um, my dad was very active in sports and um, as a player, whether it's baseball, hockey, whatever, and, and um, same with coaching. And I used to go to all of his sporting things when he was playing, and, and I was actually known as Velcro by uncles and different people because I was always attached to my father, um, and I was always at every sporting event. So that's a very early childhood memory. I must have been five or six at the time. Another one, I remember being about six or seven years old, and I was watching a movie with my parents, and there was a gay character, and this was probably, like, early 90s, so it might have been, like, Philadelphia or something like that. And I said to my parents, I said, what if I'm gay? And they said, if you're gay, you're gay. You're Brock. We love you. Wow. Yeah, and, and I remember going to my room and crying. Why did you cry? I don't know. I, I've never figured that out. Maybe just fear of knowing I was different or um, not understanding any of it. So I was so young. What, how old were you? Seven. Did you already like boys at the time or did you even have a concept of that? I didn't really have a concept of that. I I just knew I was different. I had crushes on women growing up and different things but I knew something was unique 
and um, that was it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Did your parents ever bring that up again, or was that just you know a simple question? No, I, I think they forgot. I reminded them in the last uh, few years after coming up publicly and being thrust into the media. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I told them about it. See, and that that's cool. It and it's so cool. And we'll get to you know coming out to your parents in a little bit, but it's pretty cool that your parents were just so so like yeah, that's what it would be, and that's it. Yeah, I, I'm very blessed and I recognize my privilege in that regard. Not everyone has that type of love and support from their families and I'm so lucky to have it. You said that, we'll, we'll move on to that for, from that for right now, but you said that your dad was big into sports. Did you play a lot of sports growing up? Yeah, I was a sports junkie. Um from a young age, like I grew up initially, all my relatives were in a, a really small town. My dad's side of the family has a big family and I had tons of cousins. So you name the sport, we were playing at basketball, hockey, football, baseball, you, you know, we'd be playing it at all times. Like I was always playing sports growing up. And then as I got into more competitive hockey, I didn't have as much of an opportunity to um, play like I mostly played pickup sports with the other ones just because um, hockey was my passion and also very time consuming. Mm -hmm. So it became my, my focus and, and the other sports became um, uh, more of um, hobbies but I, I'm still a sports junkie. Like I'm going to spend this afternoon uh, watching NBA playoffs, hockey playoffs, and the Blue Jays play today. So I'm going to watch that as well. Um, my day is spent. I made sure to get my workout in first thing so that I can sit on the couch all day and watch sports. That sounds like a great day. Yeah, I'm not mad about it at all. <laughs> now, I, I will say that you are I've, you are going to be my eighth episode and you are also going to be my i believe third canadian i'm i've you know i grew up around or i didn't grow up but i worked in hockey rinks in my 20s mm -hmm. and then i found out that canadians just are the best people overall yeah we're um we're a good breed <laughs> um, you really are i mean some of the nicest people you know what it is, and I, I think this is where um, Canadians differ from Americans, and I'm not ripping all Americans, and I don't want to generalize the entire population. Um, I think overall we have more of a... Uh, we're, we're a little closer to socialism without being socialist. Um, and so we, we are taught from a young age to have compassion for others. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not that Americans aren't, but I think because we have universal health care and things like that, we, and we pay higher taxes and whatnot, we, we have this empathy for all people and we're super polite because of that. We're super caring, um, almost to a fault. Um, we're almost too nice sometimes. Um, whereas I think in, in the U.S., um, people are sold this Hollywood idea of the American dream, right? And, and people think that they can be the American dream and be the 1%. Well, there's a reason why it's 1%. 
And because of that, there's not all, and I want to preface this again by saying not all, but there's an idea that it's a me first attitude. Well, as long as I have healthcare, I'm fine. As long as I have this, I'm fine. And, and it's so you can take steps closer to becoming that 1%. But the reality is it's not there for 99%. So I, I mean, personally, I'd rather live in a world where we are empathetic and compassionate towards others and, and just kind people. Um, I live by the motto that we're all part of humankind. Just be kind to one another. And I think in California, you have that. California is kind of known to be a little more liberal and loving and, and, you know, and especially in Northern California with San Fran and whatnot, it's a little hippier and, and, you know, free love and whatnot. Yeah. California is, it's so big that it's, it's almost like we have three or four different Californians. Fair. Um, You know, we have the coast, we have Central Valley, you have the hippies up north, and, and no offense to anybody who listens that might be offended by that. But I think a lot of it, too, is even for California, where we are liberal, we're, we're accepting of LGBT issues more, um, race is accepted more, for the most part. I think we still get closed off, too, because we're so big that, you know, we don't spend time in mass transit. We're always in our own car. Um, mm-hmm. we, we get busy. I mean, Silicon Valley, where I am. It's just so big and you have to stay busy. If your kids are playing sports, your life, whatever it is that you're involved in, it, it just keeps you on the go. So I think that's part of the reason why California specifically or even the U.S. may be different. It seems like Canada and even in uh, countries in Europe have a more community-based system. Well, I think that comes to, like you were saying about, like, traveling and and commuting um in major cities like toronto uh everyone is a lot of the people are in the core right so they're commuting uh they're using public transit to get around like you'll see the ceo of a major company on the subway Mm -hmm. whereas there's so much sprawl in california that you don't really have that luxury as much right and in europe everyone's walking everywhere because it's so condensed Mm-hmm. and and um so maybe that plays into it as well um but that said our country is like our landmass is i'm pretty sure larger than the u.s and yet we have like what a tenth of the population yeah way less people. uh you know so i i i don't know why why it is but i i think it may like i said have to do with that idea of the american dream and and becoming the one percent and putting yourself first instead of putting humanity first. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk competitive hockey. Uh-oh. For you, as you start to get um, involved in sports and you move on to concentrating on hockey. Mm-hmm. Life at the rink. Yes. How often are you there each week? When I was a kid? Yeah. I couldn't, my parents couldn't get me off the ice. When I was growing up, I was living in a really small town, and the arena was down the street from my house. And the teams from the nearby city would come and practice in the small town because there was more ice available and also it was cheaper. Mm -hmm. So whenever a team would show up with one goaltender, I would be on the ice. I would average 12 to 15 ice times a week um, in my, like, at 10 years old. Wow. 
And my parents would have to bring my meals to the arena. I wouldn't leave. They couldn't get me. I If they wouldn't drive me, I would walk with my equipment to the rink and wait, hoping that a team would show up with one goalie. And then would you... I would I'd imagine your community rink was just a single surface? Yeah, it was just a small town rink. It was like incredibly old school it was freezing cold um so cold in fact that like halfway through practices an hour and a half practice teams would go and warm up in the locker rooms uh in in an hour and a half i've seen water bottles freeze like full water bottles would be uh blocks of ice by the end um it was wild um but i wouldn't leave there after school if nothing was going on i would just go to the rink and fool around on the ice and because i was uh from the small town because my dad knew the arena manager well excuse me the arena manager while i grew up with him um because i was like a good player probably um they would just let me on so when kids like other kids would you hear stories all the time of kids growing up on outdoor rinks and playing i grew up on a rink um, in an arena, it was probably colder than it was outside. <laughs> um, even though I was in Northern Ontario, which could get down to like minus 40 Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's damn cold. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would just live there. I'd get my homework done, go to the rink. And, and that's all I cared about. I just loved being on the ice. Was it primarily hockey then that was played there? Did they have any figure skating? Um, no, it was predominantly hockey in this town. Um, it was small town, northern Ontario. I think for figure skating to get proper coaching and whatnot, you had to go into the, the city. There wasn't the same resources for figure skaters in the town. Um, there weren't really a ton of resources for hockey players other than people like my dad who kind of helped and tried to guide everyone. It was uh, it was all hockey all the time. So when you start to get to the level where you're traveling more, like on a travel team, how how old are you then? Um, probably around that same time, ten. Um, by the time I was twelve ish, twelve or thirteen, I'd moved up to AAA in a major city, or in a city rather. Um, and uh, then by the age of thirteen, I was you know still practicing. I was on the ice as much as possible and. Uh, traveling across the province for tournaments and games and whatnot. And that happened all the way through until I was 16 and moved on to junior. When you start doing traveling and you're like 12 or 13, are you still on a team based in your little town or are you in a no. bigger city? Yeah, and so what I city moved, would that I'm, be? I moved to the city at that point. It was Sudbury. So Sudbury is um, about three hours north of Toronto. Okay. And um, at that point, I had moved to play AAA hockey and competitive hockey in Sudbury. And then we travel throughout northern Ontario and then down south for tournaments. Now, at this time, do you already know you're gay yourself or do you, are you still to terms with that? I'm, I start to have inclinations. I mean, I was hitting puberty, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I had urges and sexual desires, and, and I knew that something was different. Um, I, I knew that when the guys in the locker room are talking about women, 
treatment, I didn't necessarily feel the same way. And mm -hmm. I didn't see it the same way. Um, my thoughts were more about men. And um, I hit it well. But at that time, I started to recognize that things were a little different. I also, at that time, started to develop a severe anxiety disorder. So <laughs> it probably played, went hand in hand. How did that manifest itself at that age? I'd have panic attacks. I would just, um, the, the craziest things would set me off. I had major fears of death of the world, I, like some existential type things about why we're on this planet and whatnot, like things that your usual 12 year old doesn't necessarily ask. You know, what's crazy. That is the same type of thing I had at that age. And I, no fact, I honestly, it's the last one I had, um, it was probably 2002, um, but I would get the same thing. No kidding. I, I feared actually going outside. Um, it got to that point. And I let my parents know I hit a lot of it. I was afraid. I didn't want them to know because, I mean, at the time, I would have been like this would have been mid-90s. I mean, medication and therapy and everything isn't where it is today. Um, so a lot of the medications were solely numbing agents that, you know, you didn't really have the, like you were kind of a zombie and I saw people on them and it scared me. So I didn't want to tell my parents everything that I was going through because I didn't want to go on the medications, um, honestly, because I feared that it would impact hockey. And it just wasn't socially acceptable back then. I mean, now you have a much more comfortable level of public discussion. Yeah, it's getting there. I still think it's um, not fully there yet. Like in Canada right now, we have suicide epidemic. Um, and and then if you look at the LGBTQ plus community, it's um, the rates are even higher for youth um, and and or for the people in general. And and then on top of that, youth is even higher than the general population. I mean, you look at it was trans people; they're forty two percent commit suicide yeah that's insane that's terrifying and and i think you know as much as we've gone to a level that we are okay with taking antidepressants and whatnot we have to find ways to make proper therapy more accessible to human beings so that we are living healthier happier lives yeah and we also have to talk about it more yeah and i think that goes hand in hand right um, I know I actually, right before we got on here, um, people close to me, I lost somebody I knew well. He committed suicide a year ago. Um, and he was, I'm very, he was somebody very close to the people that I'm very close with. Um, it was my partner's brother. And I was there when the family found out. And it was probably the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. That's and cool. yeah, and um, it, it, um, we have to do a better job and we have to do a better job with kids, especially kids going through puberty and changes and whatnot and, and getting them the help they need. And I think school systems have to be better at it. Um, parents have to recognize that exposing your kids to discussing this stuff isn't a negative. It's actually a positive. Mm -hmm. And by sweeping it under the rug, you're actually going to hurt your children. And, and it's funny, you know, like, well, not funny, but, um, in the situation I'm talking about, it's a very open, welcoming, loving family who would talk about anything. And it just, you know, 
seeing what I've seen and then working with the at-risk youth that I work with, it's very eye-opening and scary. Okay, that was a big you. tangent off hockey growing up. It's okay. It's, it's, we'll bounce back and forth. You mentioned that the family was open and everything. I think because we've been trained so much on what a traditional life should look like, naturally we put these internal pressures on us that if we just opened up and shared, it wouldn't be, things would be better. Completely. And, and you know, I, I look at my life and I wouldn't share who I was. And I tried to kill myself on a number of occasions. Really? Um, oh, yeah. I was incredibly suicidal through my hockey career. And it's because I, I fear there's such a stigma around being a gay man in male team sports that I didn't think I could be me and be a hockey player. And because I was good at the sport and I identified as, you know, throughout my life, and especially in Canada, um, I guess it would be like, I think your area is probably predominantly baseball-centric. Baseball and football, yeah. Well, I mean, we have the Warriors too, so. Yeah, and basketball. Um, But you look at, let's say, Texas. If you're a football player in, in Texas growing up in high school and whatnot, so the same age as, like, major, junior, mm-hmm. and and even younger. You're solely viewed, you identify solely as, you know, John Smith football player. John Smith quarterback. You're not just John Smith. Who is John Smith? He's the football player. Mm-hmm. That was me in hockey. I was Brock McGillis hockey player. So how can I open up about my sexuality knowing that the sport or male team sports in general aren't inclusive to this and, and expect you to be this hyper-masculine, rugged person? If you're gay, you're less than that. And, you know, um, if I'm gay, I can't be Brock Miguel's hockey player. And I've self-identified as that since a young age because I was talented and good at the sport. And going back to earlier when I was on those AAA traveling teams and whatnot and and you know so you start getting some attention because of that because i'm in a small town and i'm the top player in that town and and all of a sudden you know you can't tell people so you think being on a a team sport and being good at it do you think that adds pressure i think it it changes how you view yourself because people give you attention um i equate um talented athletes in teams male team sports to um especially depending on the region what the main sport is so if you're in the main sport like if you're a talented volleyball player you're not getting the same attention as a hockey player in canada right you know if you're a talented um soccer player in texas you're probably not getting the same attention as the football player but if you are on in one of the top two main sports in the area and you are the top player or an elite player, you are going to be identified as that by society and you're going to start to get attention for that. So I equate these people and then your peers look up to you. Um, I used to have a saying when I was a kid, girls want me, guys want to be me. Mm-hmm. Cause I was a cocky little bugger. Um, <laughs> and, 
and the reason I had that saying was because uh, my peers who played hockey wanted to play at my levels. And then you're revered by you're revered by adults. You're instantly given respect, and and or you go on a date with, go on a date with a young woman, and and her father would come. I'd show up at the house. Dad's already talking to me about hockey. Loves me already. I'm a good hockey boy. My peers were in the same boat, or they were playing lesser levels and kind of wanted to play those levels. And then kids younger than me looked up to me because I was the hockey boy playing this level. And they wanted to get to the point where they were me. So my whole world was based on this idea that I'm a hockey player. So I equate these at, at that point, like when you're a high-end minor hockey player, when you get to like major junior level, um, I equate that to be the same as like a youtuber and instagram influencer mm-hmm. you have some celebrity and whatnot but you are still typically accessible to the public whereas if you look at like a connor mcdavid or or a Sidney crosby they're more like a brad pitt or george clooney right mm-hmm. they're they're not in the public they're not engaging with minor hockey kids on a daily basis they're not around they're not going to school with their peers I think that leads to your whole identity being, you know, based on this one aspect of yourself, just the sport, because you, you're given so much attention and notoriety based solely off that notoriety and attention that your peers aren't getting. That feeding of the ego that you would get from other people, do you think it changed who you were while playing? Well, yeah. I I mean... I didn't want to um, come out, first of all. Mm-hmm. I hid my sexuality for a very long time. I, um, I was a womanizer. I'm ashamed to admit this, but I, um, to this day, have been with far more women than men. And I identify as a gay man. Were you into them when you were with the, the women? Or was it more of just going through the motions? It... Honestly, and, and I hate to say this, and again, it goes to the idea that I refer to myself as a womanizer. I feel like it was almost like a business transaction. Like it was something I had to do to be Brock McGillis hockey player and to keep up this story in life and facade in order to progress my career. Interesting. Yeah, it's really sad. And it's sad that I put other people through that. and It was incredibly selfish. I'm I'm embarrassed by it. Did you ever uh, talk to any of the women, uh, like later on when you come out? Actually, one of them I kind of set up with a friend of mine. Now they're married with uh, a child. <laughs> uh, did, but did you talk to her about it, about how you felt? And no, I've I've made it very clear through media that I'm I'm I've been very apologetic. I don't want to make them relive any of it if if they're uncomfortable with it. That makes sense. You know, I, I think it would be selfish of me to, you know, apologize for my sake today when I, I can apologize publicly and, and they'll see it. And and I was a kid and I was stupid and I didn't and I know that's not an excuse for treating people poorly, but I was really lost. And yeah. and, you know, like I, I would go home, like taking a step further and getting to like my OHL days, I, I, I would go home at night and I would 
like people thought I had this sweet life, right? And like I said, like my peers who wanted to play those levels, um, kids in the community, like wherever I was playing in the OHL and whatnot, adults who were like super fans. Everyone thought I had this wicked life. But I'd go home at night, I, I would drop my girlfriend off or whoever, friends, whatever, and I would cry and cry and cry. I like the self-loathing the hatred I had for myself ran so deep. When was the lowest point for you as just a person Ooh. playing sports? I have probably three. I have three moments that really stick out to me. I remember being uh, playing in the OHL in Windsor, and I was sitting in my billet's house. It was 11 or 12 o'clock, and at this point, I was numbing with alcohol. I was drinking daily. From the age of 17 to 23, I probably drank daily. Wow. Yeah. Um, I was incredibly depressed. Um, I was suicidal. I had attempted suicide already at this point. I was sitting in the basement of their house. Everyone was asleep, and I started drinking. And I was just getting over. Um, I, I had a lot of injuries. Every year, it's funny, as, as I started to recognize my sexuality, every year I had a season-ending injury from 15 to I stopped playing. Um, and I think a lot of those injuries were psychosomatic. And due to the stress that I was putting myself through, my body just couldn't take it. Um, the stress of drinking heavily, the stress of being so depressed, the stress of not exposing who I truly was. I had a moment at 18 where I was sitting in my billet's basement and I was drinking and I just broke down and I just didn't know why I was crying and I just couldn't stop and it was hours and at that point I had just gone over mono. Um, I came back, I started seven straight games and then I got my hand skated over. And I was injured, and I was so depressed. I just couldn't stop crying. It's probably the lowest I felt. I had another moment at 19. I tore my MCL and missed the entire season. Um, and I remember going out with friends and drinking heavily and then drinking at a party after the bar and now it was probably five or six in the morning. I was sitting near a train track and I just wanted to jump in front of the train that was going by. And I remember throwing something at the train, just being so angry. Do you know what stopped you from that? I just couldn't do that to my family. I couldn't put them through that. They love me so much. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's really the only thing that stopped me. Um, and then at 23, living in Europe, playing hockey over there and um i sat myself down one day and i said you need to figure this out so i knew two things were going to happen one my hockey career was ending i mean it derailed from being on nhl draft list and supposed to have this phenomenal career to now i've been injured every season i'm severely depressed and struggling and 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 I have to add, I hid my depression incredibly well. I could fake being happy. I, I should have been an actor, not a hockey player, because I, I, A, 
I played the role of a straight man for a long time, and I played the role of a happy hockey player for a very long time. Um, I sat myself down one day and I said, you need to figure this out because one, your career is about to end. And two, you're going to end up dead. And that's when I decided to go on a date with a man. Prior to that, you're Mm -hmm. just dating girls. You're not hooking up. You're not dating guys at all. No, I was just hooking up with women. Like literally. and, And it was at a point where when I would hear, oh, everyone thinks this woman is the hottest excuse me, the hottest woman in school or this or that or the other. And I was like, oh, that's who I'm going to date. That's interesting. Yeah. I I created a persona of this is who everyone loves. Fine. This is who everyone wants to date. Fine. I'll date her. And how long would you typically date them? I mean, you, would you give like a couple months and then yeah. move on? Or? Yeah. Give or take. Sometimes I wouldn't even give it any time it would just be like a hookup and move on yeah yeah are you getting anything out of the hookup and i'm not talking pleasure i'm talking um, besides just being able to have to brag or someone able to see you are you getting anything um, more out i of mean it? if it, it obviously like fueled my ego to hear everyone like so and so and then i'm the one that can you know make it happen so it was, and then it was for the ego- women to be into you, I take it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was ego based, definitely. But like in terms of feelings or emotional, like love, no, I was again, I cared for some people and I loved them as people, but um, it wasn't a romantic, like loving relationship it wasn't healthy but there was no way based off my mental state that i could have a healthy loving relationship even with a man at that point okay you know like i i it took years of therapy to get to a point that i could be in a, in a loving happy sustainable relationship um because i just i went through some stuff and and you know i had to work through that you talked about your first date with a guy how does that how does that change for you? Like, how do you change inside once you have that first date? I knew right away. Um, I remember being terrified when I met him. And it's really funny. I'm a six foot one, 200 pound muscular hockey player. And I met this, you know, tiny, blonde, pretty boy. And, and I was trembling. <laughs> and this was in Europe, while you were in Europe? It was after my season. Um, uh, a couple things happened. Uh, I went on. Uh, this is pre-apps. <laughs> um, and for your listeners who are young, there was an era of dating before apps where we'd go on the internet on dating sites. And before that, they didn't even have that. They just like had secret code language. So um, I went on a website. And I don't know if I've shared this publicly or not. Um, I went on Gaydar. Okay. And I saw, I checked my hometown, and I saw a lot of men who were married to women. And that scared the hell out of me. Why did that scare you? Because I said, that's going to be me. 
that's going to be me. I'm going to have a wife and children and I'm going to be in my 40s or 50s cruising for men on the internet. And so that's what made you... That was... Uh, I just had this, you know, you need to figure this out moment. And then I went on and searched and that's when I went, holy shit. And I, I don't know if I can say that oh, word yeah. on here. You can okay. say whatever you want. Oh, I can swear? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's really exciting because I swear like a trucker. <laughs> um, but I was like, holy fuck, I'm, I'm, that's going to be me. I'm going to have a wife and children and I'm going to be on the internet looking for men. And, and as selfish as I had been in terms of being a womanizer and having all these different partners and everything else, I at the very least hadn't married. And, and not that Listen, I don't want to begrudge any of the men that I saw online or any of the generations that came before me because they lived in a whole different time where they might have been jailed or beaten or, you know, so many different things for being gay. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they kind of had to try and force themselves to be straight. I didn't live in that time. So I could be me. And I went, like, how incredibly selfish for me at this time in my life based off my circumstances being you know from a incredibly inclusive family and supportive family and and um everything else how how selfish would it be of me to bring you know have a wife and bring children into this world knowing who i am that's i think a sort of a sad part of the story for me is your family was so open, it seems like, and we'll talk coming out to them as well. Yeah. But it's sad that the sport is what caused your, your sadness, your depression, um, just the attitudes you, maybe you didn't and, receive yourself, but you just saw, you know, no, in and, the locker and, and, room. And, and quite honestly, that was all due to language. That was language I heard in locker rooms, language I heard at school. All my friends were hockey players. So like, you know, that's what I heard. And hockey is very much a bubble. It's incredibly insular. It's a world within the world. It polices itself. And hockey kids, because like I just said to you, I was in rinks 15 times a week. Mm-hmm. So my friends were the other hockey guys I was hanging out with, at the rink with. And then I traveled all over with these hockey guys. So who did I hang out with? Them. And then as you get a little older, you move away for hockey and everyone's from somewhere else and they're moving to the city or town or wherever they're playing. So the majority of the kids are just moving there and they don't know anyone. And who do they meet as soon as they move there? Their teammates. So now they instantly have 20 friends. So who are they hanging out with all the time? The hockey boys. And then they meet other hockey players who might be from that community, whatnot, and, or they play against their close by and and that's your friend groups and then you go home in the summer and who do you hang out with the people you grew up with your friends growing up all the hockey players you grew up with yeah that's so you're always in this bubble so for me i i was never bullied i'm very blessed i i have a very different coming out story to and very different life experiences to most queer people in that sense. I wasn't bullied. 
but us constantly surrounded by homonegative language. Do you date a guy first, or do you come out to your family first? So, well, um, when, as soon as that season ended in Europe, I went to Toronto, and I went on a date with this person. And I knew that this was for me. This is who I was. And at that point, I started dating him. And I thought it would be such relief that I figured out who I was. And I had accepted who I was. And now I thought my hockey career would get back on track. I would be happy. I wouldn't have to, you know, live this facade and, and, and date women and all this stuff. And I could be me. But I was still playing hockey and I didn't want anyone to know because, and especially at this point, because of all the injuries and everything I'd struggled with in the game, I, was take, I wasn't taking the traditional route to try and make the NHL. I was taking the long road. And I feared that if anyone found out about my sexuality at this point, that no teams would give me an opportunity and my career would be over. And this is what year? Oh, goodness. Um, I was 23, so uh, going to be... So, 12 years ago? Okay. Yeah, so, what's that, 2007-ish? All right. And I feared and I was convinced that if anyone found out... So, things actually got worse because now I was in the closet. I had accepted that I was gay, but I didn't want anyone else to know. And now I'm not only hiding my sexuality, I'm hiding a partner. And we actually dated for three years without anybody in my life knowing. How do you do that? Uh, he was in Toronto and my family is in Sudbury. Okay. And like you talked about I, the bubble of hockey, either you're yeah, in a bubble or I, you're not, so you could separate. I alienated myself from hockey people. I distanced myself completely. Um, I had him this was pre-instagram um i had him lie about my name to his friends we had an alias so that if they went on facebook or googled me they wouldn't figure out who i was it was hard it was taxing mentally physically emotionally it was taxing for him and, and i hate that we had to go through that because he was such a wonderful person and, and I hate that that was our experience together. Are you still being playing the part of the womanizer then on teams? Or at this point, you're just done with that and you know who you are? I was, I was actually fortunate that, um, and this sounds ridiculous, but two of the years we were dating, um, I was injured severely. Um, my knees, I had multiple knee surgeries and I wasn't playing. Okay. Um, so I was able to explore who I was without the pressures of hockey getting in the way and the pressures of being this hyper-masculine, womanizing, macho bro, impacting everything else. But near the end, and when we broke up, I had taken a step back from professional hockey, and because of the injuries, I decided to focus more on education. I went and played university hockey and focused on my schooling in Montreal, and at that point... He, uh, I told him, I said, I might have to, you know, um, hook up with women just to keep up appearances. 
And that was just too much for him to take, and understandably and rightfully so. Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't blame him one bit, and I, I, I feel horrible to this day that I did that, but I just I thought it was the only way I could be me, and it was incredibly selfish um, and self-serving. But again, when you're thrust into this as a kid, being told you're like like these youtubers and whatnot who are being told they're stars as kids you don't see the world beyond you know yourself and and you're going to protect your world at all costs and that's kind of what i did and to this day i regret it was he your first love do you think yeah yeah he really was we spent, and there was other issues in the relationship. It wasn't just my stuff. He, he had some personal things going on as well. We were young, naive, and and uh, I was so new to even accepting that I was gay. You know, um, it just our time wasn't right. And I know he's happy and he's married and has a wonderful partner. I think they're actually in L.A. now. So he, he has a great life and I'm very happy for him. Uh, we don't talk, um, which saddens me because he's a pretty incredible person. But it's, um, it's you know, it was, it was definitely a learning experience for me. And I, I think all those experiences kind of shaped me and turned me into the person I am today and and living the way I live and and sharing my story and becoming an advocate yeah it's all part of who you are he played that completely completely and that was a really interesting time uh after we broke up I mean I was so alone I went from you know like hockey womanizing guy to you know dating a man to i'm playing university hockey in montreal i'm closeted and i just broke up with the first person i love and nobody knows when do you tell your parents well so uh, a couple things happened well one thing one big thing happened right then that sort of had me come out i was watching a leafs game one night on tv and uh, between periods, there was this kid being interviewed. Um, and I wasn't really paying attention. And this kid was Brendan Burke. And Brendan's the son of Brian Burke. And Brendan um, was talking about following in his father's footsteps, blah, blah, blah. I wanted to be a general manager, blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't really paying attention. And then he says, and I am gay. It was the first time I heard hockey and gay in the same sentence unless somebody was saying, you're so gay. <laughs> you know, um, it was the first time that I heard somebody come out in hockey. Um, so I reached out to Brendan. And the hockey world's a very small place, so it didn't take much to get in contact with him. And we instantly became friends. We spoke quite frequently, and it was so needed in my life i finally had somebody i could talk to about being gay i finally had somebody i could talk to about this relationship i was grieving i had somebody i could talk to about being gay and also talk to about hockey 
I had somebody who understood the duality of me being this like macho hockey bro, but at the same time being gay. And because, you know, there was no representation of anything like that anyway. So um, we became friends. And I think for him, it was great too, because he got thrust in the media spotlight and the hockey world. And um, for him, he had somebody who understood the duality as well of, you know, and, and kind of understood the pressures that he now had on him. And we would talk almost daily. And then one day, Brendan sent me a text message and it said, I can't wait for the day that you're out to your family like I am to mine. And I knew my family would be incredibly supportive and inclusive and loving and but I fear telling them because um, my brother was a first round pick in the OHL and played professional hockey. My father coached for over 20 years and scouted for a very long time. And he coached junior and scouted in the OHL. And I feared that if they knew they become more sensitive to the language that's used in locker rooms. And um, they're rugged, hyper-masculine men, and they would stand up to it. And in the process, they'd accidentally out me. And because I was, you know, taking the long road to try and make a career out of hockey still, a non-traditional path, I knew that if anything happened, it would jeopardize any chance I had. Mm Mm-hmm. So I didn't want them to know. So when I got this text message from Brendan, I panicked. I was kind of like, ooh, fuck this. And I I remember like throwing my phone on my bed and ignoring the message. Well, those ended up being the last words Brendan ever said to me. Two days later, he died in a car accident. Wow. At that point, I knew I had to tell someone. Um, I knew I needed help. I couldn't do this alone. And uh, I sat my brother down. And my brother is a six foot two, two 210 pound power forward who fought, hit, scored goals. And I sat him down and I said, Corey, I'm gay. And he said, yeah, so. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's, thought I got some reaction, but hey, this works too. Um, shortly after, I followed up with my parents and same type of thing. We love you. Um, they didn't care. And, and I, I wasn't worried about acceptance from them because I don't, I, I'm a big believer in this and, and I try and preach it everywhere I go. Only you can accept you to, to get acceptance from a heterosexual based off your sexuality means they're above you. It means there's a hierarchy and it's bullshit. They can support you, they can love you, they can be inclusive, but only you can accept you. And then when you do accept yourself and learn to love yourself, you're going to be happy regardless of what anyone else thinks. And this is something that took me a long time to learn. And that came from learning that I don't need to be accepted in hockey. I accept me and I love me. And if they don't, fuck off. Yeah. So I came out to them. Everyone was cool. I started coming out to family and friends, but I remained closeted in hockey at that point. And I feared for my career. 
And then so, but you don't end up coming out until after you stop playing, right? Yeah. So after I stopped, I retired not long after. I just honestly, um, it was such a dramatic retirement <laughs> um, in the most fabulous gay way possible. Um, I was heading back to the States to play professionally. Oh, what year was it? It might have been like 2012. And I was at the border in Windsor and I was about to fill out paperwork to get my visa. And I, I was questioning what I was doing and why I was still playing. And if it was just because, you know, my identity was based in this and could I handle hiding my sexuality and, and going back in the closet. Plus my knees were a mess and my body ached and still aches. Um, and I was like, do I really want to put myself through this? And I had an eight-hour drive by myself to the border to figure that out. And I got there, and it took all the way until I went into the... Um, to fill out the paperwork at the Border Patrol. And I, I sat there, and I went, you know what? I don't... I can't do this. And it was Canadian Thanksgiving which is about a month earlier, a month and a half earlier than yours. Mm -hmm. um, and I got back in my car and turned it around. And I drove to Toronto and I spent the long weekend going to gay clubs and hanging out with some gay friends that I had made and just having the best time. And I never felt so free and liberated as I did in that moment. Because I made a choice for me on my terms that wasn't for hockey. And I could, I thought at that point that I would leave hockey behind forever. But after I retired, I was still finishing school and I chose to come I leave uh, a gay mecca that is Montreal, which was a mistake, to move back to Sudbury. Uh, my mom's a professor here and I had free tuition. So I was like, you know what, I'll just finish school there. So I moved back and um, I started working with some athletes, doing some mentoring, some training, some coaching, that type of stuff. And I feared that in Northern Ontario, where there isn't, like I had one gay kid in my high school, maybe, um, there isn't a lot of exposure to the LGBT community. And most people, you know, come out and run to Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver in Canada. Um, kind of like New York, LA, Chicago in the US, right? So I was like back in the closet working with these athletes. And I feared that if their parents found out I was gay, that they wouldn't want their kids to work with me. So I hit it until one day I found out that they, I, I got a phone call from a hockey mom. And hockey parents are uh, the most unique breed of human in existence. They're a little nuts. And I got a call from a hockey mom, and I usually get about 100 phone calls a day from hockey parents, but this one was a little different. This mother calls me and says, Brock, I want to set you up on a date. I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> and what am I going to tell her? And then I said, what's her name? And she said, Steve. And I said, what? She said, his name's Steve. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? 
She's like, Brock, you're gay. And I was speechless, shocked, afraid. I said, what? And at this point, she's losing her patience with me. So she starts shouting, you're gay. I know you're gay. <laughs> and I'm like, how, how do you know this? She's like, oh, my son told me. She's like, all the boys know. They've known for years. Her son was 15 at the time, so he'd known since he was 12 or 13. And I, I start to panic instantly because I was like, all these kids know I'm gay. They're not going to want to work with me anymore. What am I going to do? Uh, you know, like I'm in this northern Ontario city that, you know, doesn't have any exposure to this type of thing. And I was panicked, completely panicked. And then I thought to myself, wait, all these hockey hockey boys who think they're a gift to the world the way I thought I was and who are these social influencers and everything else know I'm gay and they choose to work with me. How cool is that? So I thought at that point, maybe I should come out. Maybe I should just tell them, you know, let the cat out of the bag and just say, hey, guess what? We all know. Ha ha. <laughs> but, in, but instead, I decided to do a little sociology experiment. I always tried to curb racist, sexist, and homophobic language, but I, I decided to observe their behaviors because I know they know I'm gay, and I know that they know that I'm gay, but they don't know that I know. So I thought, you know what? Maybe I can observe their behaviors and see how they act when they use homophobic language, because it's very common in, in the sport and it's very common amongst youth athletes. And I think that goes back to that insularity of the sport and the fact that, you know, ex hockey players become coaches, managers, and, and ex hockey players also have hockey babies who grow up and play hockey. And, you know, so, so the, the cycle of the language and the culture kind of just, continues to repeat itself over and over and over so i started to notice that anytime my athletes would say something homophobic they they would freeze up and apologize to me and i would just kind of nod and be like it's fine um and i thought well cool maybe we're maybe i'm having a social impact and then i thought or maybe you know they just like me and i'm gay so every time they you know they say something homophobic in front of me they apologize but then they go to school or different places and they call kids fags and you know, pick on people and, and they're really nasty. And I had no idea what was real and what wasn't. And then one day I wasn't there and I had a sprint coach working with some athletes and he had them on a track and he told them at the end of a two hour workout that they had to do 10, 200 meter sprints or something stupid. And one of my younger players who comes from a very progressive, inclusive family, um, looked at the sprint coach and said, that's okay. I can't believe you're making us do this. And one of my older players who comes from probably a less progressive family looked at the younger player and said, we don't say that here. Give me 50 push-ups." Wait, the player oh. is the one that said that. So a younger player said, that's okay. I can't believe you're making us do this. And an older player who came from a less progressive family than the younger player looked at the older player and said, we don't say that here. Give me 50 push-ups. That is crazy that the, the older kid actually stood dealt up. with it. Without, That's great. 
And the younger player said, you know what, you're right. And did 50 push-ups. And actually, because these kids are influencers, they brought it, once they saw that, they kind of brought it to their friends and teammates in different groups. Um, actually, the younger player, I guess, told his teammates about it. And one of his teammates one day was talking to a young woman, they were 15 at the time, on FaceTime. And she said, let's hang out tonight. And the player said, oh, I can't, I have practice. And she said, that's so gay. And the player said, give me 50 push-ups right now. I'm never talking to you again. And she actually got down and did 50 push-ups. <laughs> and it just, it blew my mind and made me realize that a social impact can, can happen. And, and if I can create a shift in this little bubble that I have within the bubble that is hockey, and these kids are influencers in mainstream society, then a social impact, a full social impact can happen. And I probably should have came out at that time, but honestly, I was still afraid, and I had all these stigmas in my mind of growing up and, and, and hockey being so homophobic and the language that was still being used, and I didn't come out. And then a couple other things happened. Um, a hockey association that season, that next season, um, alienated me. They, my sexuality was, you know, it was the best or the worst kept secret um, going. And, and people were starting to whisper and competitors and what I do were outing me. And a hockey association blackballed me from working with their players. Wow. They just said... We don't need you. We'll, we'll take your, your coaching. You can coach. I was the only one of my competitors that does any training or anything that coached. And I coached for free. But anything in the mentorship or the training aspect, they said, we're not using you. And this was an association I grew up playing in. My brother grew up playing in. My dad coached in forever. And that's the crazy thing because... You compare that to figure skating, or even in Canada, you have gay coaches teaching youth, and it's not an issue, but you enter, you go into a masculine sport like hockey, a team sport, and it's complete opposite. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, this was three years ago. This wasn't a long time ago. Yeah. For um, as many steps as we've taken, we still have so far to go. Yeah, and, and that's my issue with some of the groups and some of the leagues. And I'll get to that in a moment. I'll, I'll finish the other things. But that happened. And then right after that season, there was the incident in Orlando, the massacre at Pulse Nightclub. Mm -hmm. And I started to realize that, you know, not everyone has my privilege. I can walk down a street and people assume I'm straight. I don't get harassed or bullied or, or called names um, and people still do and those gay bars, those queer spaces are safe spaces for our community. That's where people can go and be themselves without fear of ridicule judgment, alienation because the reality is even today in 2019 if two men were walking down the street in Toronto, New York LA and they were holding hands they might still be called names if they're outside of, you know, Hell's Kitchen or Church Street in Toronto or West Hollywood or wherever is the super safe space. Um, 
lesbians together or just trans people in general and we're seeing you know how trans people are treated in society and even looking you know the trans ban that your president has put on um and and the reality is these queer spaces are safe spaces for our communities they can go and be themselves without fear of judgment or alienation or ridicule or violence and those that was taken away from us and this wasn't somewhere across the world where it's illegal to be gay and, and you are, you know, this isn't Chechnya, this isn't Brunei, this isn't, you know, I think it was, uh, I don't want to quote the country, but I had somebody reach out to me in the last six months from a country where it's legal to be gay and his best friend started the first LGBT newsletter over there and he was found by the government and decapitated. Um, this isn't there. This is Florida. I have friends in Florida. This could have been me and my friend. It, and it just is home for everybody ever Uh, and then another thing happened right after that one of my best friends was working he was a pretty well-known figure um in lgbt in canada he was in the media a fair bit um and he was um targeted by um a radical group um i whether it was an ISIS or one of those, and they were going to kill him for being gay. We were supposed to go to a charity event together and, and uh, the following weekend after Pulse, and he called me on the Wednesday and he said, I don't think you should come. And I'm like, well, that's mean. Like, hmm. I wanted to go. It looked like fun. And he's like, um, I just got a call from the RCMP and I'm on a hit list. I said, shut up. You're not on a hit list. And he goes, no, for real, I am. And he's like, they may target me at this event. I said, well, are you going? He's like, yeah, I have to go. And it was recommended he still go. Everything. I said, well, I'm coming with you. And nobody's scaring me out of our spaces. And and keep in mind, this 2016 or Pulse 2016, um, it was that year, like that's three three years ago, you know. And and we got into an Uber, and I remember sitting outside of his condo, and we each chugged a drink, um, just to give us a little liquid courage. And we got into an Uber, and we went to this event, assuming we were going to die. It was a charity event, and we got there. They had those. They were patting everyone down. They had those like wands out that you see at the airports and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we were convinced we were going to die that night. And we had undercover RCMP officers and police all around us. And luckily, nothing happened. Um, they've stopped any and prevented any possible attack then. And, and I think uh, it's not a, he's not at risk any longer. But at that moment, I knew I had to do something. Um, I had to do something because I was seeing so much hate towards my community and I had to do something because um, I needed to empower myself and take away the idea that people were outing me and using my sexuality against me and I needed a way to make myself feel strong and armor myself with it and and it was a little fuck you to the people who were outing me and it was also a way of saying you can't use who I am against me any longer. Mm-hmm. 
And I contacted a friend of mine who's a journalist at the time. She was with uh, Yahoo Sports. Now she's with The Athletic. And she was there um, covering the OHL during my darkest moments. And she knew a lot about me. She was somebody I confided in back then. And I said, I'm writing this. I'm coming out publicly. Do you want to do it? And so I did it through her, through Yahoo Sports. And I came out publicly uh, that summer. How did that go for you? Was it just a relief? I didn't know how it would go uh, initially. I thought, you know what, maybe I'll, I'm, I'm going to help myself. Maybe I'll help the odd kid, you know, who reads it. I, I didn't know what to expect, really. Um, I had no plan afterwards for anything. I just I'm writing this. This this something I need to do. And um, day one, I received over 10,000 messages. And um, I sat there and I cried and cried and cried. Um, it was such an emotional release. I didn't know what to do. And I, I was a wreck. It was incredible. I stayed up until 6 or 7 in the morning uh, answering every message. Oh, wow. Yeah, I answered every single message. And um, from former teammates reaching out and apologizing for the language they use to hockey parents, to um, friends, to people I didn't know, to people who came to me for support or advice, um, uh, to, you know, pretty high-end members of the hockey community, like, reaching out to me and sporting community. I mean, it was so overwhelming, so filled with love and support. I'm very blessed in that regard so where, what are you doing now then so it led to um before i knew it i got a call to speak at a school and i was like oh okay i guess this is a thing and i spoke at one um and it just snowballed and now i travel around uh north america speaking um, I'm actually heading your way. I'm heading to San Diego next week. I'm traveling, uh, speaking. I'm working on a few different projects. Um, I'm, I'm currently working on an LGBTQ plus history show with Mrs. Kasha Davis from <laughs> Drag Race. Um, uh, because I feel like, especially today, um, kids don't really know their history. And because um, our the LGBT community is very different than any other minority group in the sense that if you grow up a person of color, not always, but typically you have people of color in your life that can kind of share, you know, the history with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you grow up female, you learn about the history of you know, feminism and different things. But growing up queer, you have nobody in your life to really, your parents don't really know it unless they choose to, like, seek it out. Like, nobody really knows the oppression that came before you to give you these rights and and, and, and also the struggles you may go through in your life and different things like that. And, and you know, like, kids don't know about, uh, gay youth don't really know about Matthew Shepard. Um, most people know about Stonewall, at least, I hope. 
Um, but they don't know about a lot about like the AIDS epidemic. A lot of this stuff isn't taught to kids. So I, we're creating this show to give queer youth an understanding of what came before them, an understanding of their community, so we can create a stronger community and be there for one another and support one another. Uh, I'm working on uh, a pitch for a TV show to give queer youth role models. I go to schools and different places, events, and I have people who come to me and say things like, oh, I really relate to your story. I'm like, you're, you know, an artsy queer kid who is super quiet. And I'm, you know, this loudmouth, cocky hockey guy who was womanizing. And, you know, like, I don't know. There's got to be somebody out there that you relate to more. Mm-hmm. And and I'm hoping to create a show that gives them those role models and and can share their oppression and struggle and how they empowered themselves the way I kind of empowered myself to help youth learn to empower themselves. Um, On top of that, I'm going to continue speaking. My goal is to get to every school in North America. Um, I'm starting to do more corporate speaking, uh, dipping my toe a bit into inclusivity training for corporate so they can learn to be a little more progressive and inclusive. Um, I work with sports teams and organizations. I've been traveling around the Ontario Hockey League, speaking to all their teams about, you know, conforming and and uh, the importance of language. Because I think kids today are far more inclusive than previous generations. But I don't think their language has evolved, especially in sport, in male team sports. We have a long way to go. And that actually goes to the point earlier where you said, you know, as much as we've taken steps, there's still a long way to go. Um, I think team sports have kind of hurt that. And they're sort of holding us back. And and, uh, this is my belief, and some people feel completely different, but it's my belief. I think we see these pride nights in different events with sporting teams. Mm-hmm. And people think, oh, everything's great. Look, we had this. And it becomes a pink washing box taking measure for sport. Instead of creating sustainable change at grassroots levels and having if if you're gonna have nights like that, which I think are wonderful and 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 any visibility is good visibility, then those same sports teams if you're going to sell pride merch and everything else then you should be going into minor your minor sport in your community and educating kids on why there has to be a shift in language because queer kids aren't playing sport they're quitting and it's because they don't feel comfortable in locker room settings or in different settings with teens because the language they hear is so homophobic and sexist and that needs to shift so that they can continue to play sport and be happy within the sport. It's the reason why I, when I was a kid, I tended to go to tennis. It was an individual sport and I didn't have to deal with the team aspect of it. And, and that's an issue. And, and, and when kids are leaving sport, they're likely internalizing and feeling like they're bad or wrong because they can't fit in instead of the sport, recognizing that it shouldn't be using homophobic, sexist, racist language. And and if we teach this to youth, 
like there's the old saying you can't teach a new an old dog new tricks well you're not going to teach a 35 year old hockey player or professional athlete to be less homophobic or shift their language fully but you can teach a seven-year-old and and if you do teach a seven-year-old they're at an age where they're they're not solely a product of their home environment or sporting environment where they're open to anything and anyone and then they're at an age where a lot of them just speak up and they'll go mom dad you can't say that or they'll tell their parents you can't say that or sorry their coaches rather you can't say that that's how you create a shift yeah i had a hockey coach in major junior a year ago tell me that he used to call going through the middle of the ice in his zone, like his team zone with the puck, if one of his players did that, he called that area of the ice Queer Street. And you don't go up Queer Street. Well, that is an odd term to use. But you don't go to the fag street, right? So, but that's that's the reality of sport. That's what people aren't seeing because we have pride nights and we have, and don't get me wrong, I think it's wonderful that players are willing to walk in parades and, and show uh, compassion, empathy, and inclusivity towards, uh, you know, uh, a minority group. And, and it's so incredible. But these are the things that need to shift in the education that needs to happen at all levels that isn't happening. There, there's likely, the likelihood, like, if you think about hockey, there's over 10,000 NCAA, OA, major, junior, and above. So I, I call that professional, let's say. Mm-hmm. Professional players in the world or elite level players in the world annually. There's over 10,000. I'm the only one in the history of the sport to ever come out, but, but it's due to that language. It's due to that culture that is so insular. And, and when former players become coaches and they're still using that same language, queer street, this is what happens. And that coach is the one who actually came to me and told me about it and apologized and said, like having, I went in and spoke to all the coaches in the league and then I spoke to his team and he said, like, listening to you talk made me realize how wrong this was and the impact it can have. So a lot of them are just unaware. And we have to do a better job of educating them, but just having a celebration night isn't educating anyone. It's making it seem like nothing is wrong. And that's what needs to shift. Yeah, and I used to think, you know, as a teenager and even even up to a few years ago, just waiting for that one big star to come out. But I, I realize now that it, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think it's more going to be where a kid who came out when he was 15, 16 is going to make it to the top, and it's going to be that situation. And I don't know if we'll see that for a very long time until they shift the culture at minor sport. Mm-hmm. Um, in hockey, anyway. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to see that kid come out at 15 and stay in the game. I, I have them coming to me. They're quitting. They're all quitting. And it's because of that language. They yeah, hate themselves. It is a shame. It's sad. It's sad that people can't be themselves and play a sport they love. And when you think about, you know, suicide rates and depression and mental illness within the LGBTQ plus community because of all this internalized stuff we go through. And then the only place you might enjoy yourself is in your sport. And like for me being on the ice, the only time I didn't think about who I was. Once I was on the ice, nothing else mattered. Oh yeah. But we're taking that, 
exactly. But we're taking that away from kids. That might be their only release. Plus, it's physical activity. So that's going to help their, you know, their mood and their mental health. Plus, they're getting, you know, um, uh, they're able to achieve something and goal set and everything else and, and learn to work within a team environment and all those other wonderful things that come with sport. But when they're pushed away from it because they're told they're bad or wrong, they're just going to self-loathe and hate themselves. We're about an hour and a half in. Let's transition to something a little fun. Ooh. Um, I have a final 20 questions I ask everyone. But before that, I want to talk about Instagram. Uh Uh-oh. So there are athletes and there are people who are gay on Instagram and Twitter that are in sports or they're they're actors and they have a a relaxed feeling about themselves i guess where they joke around they are able Mm -hmm. to show skin and not stress out about it your instagram you post some great photos thank you do you ever get flack for that from anybody and by great photos what do you mean like shirtless photos oh yeah um well Honestly, I have, um, I'm a 35 year old gay man who grew up being on an ice rink and in a gym most hours of the day. I, um, I don't have the body I had at 25 or 20 or 18 anymore. Um, so, and, but I still, you know, I'm my biggest, and I know people are going to say, oh, poor you, like you, like I have, you know, I, I'm not, I shouldn't, not that I shouldn't, but I, I have a physique or an aesthetic that a lot of people would like to have. I'm aware of that, but I have body image issues. I have some body dysmorphia. I am hypercritical. I'm uh, not comfortable being shirtless or anything like that, typically. And I've posted more photos like that recently for me, again, to empower myself and say, okay, you don't have the eight pack you had at 20 years old, but you're still beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. And you work hard for what you have, and I'm I'm very um, conscious when it comes to my eating habits and everything else, and a lot of it. And I I, I work out a lot. Um, a lot of it is for mental health. Um, I still have an anxiety disorder. I still suffer from depression, and I I'm uh, constantly working on myself for those reasons. Um, and do I receive flack a little bit? I mean, somebody, uh, I posted a photo recently and uh, I was in a tank top and my arm was showing and, and somebody said, wow, get that guy some more steroids. I'm There's like, always going to be those assholes. Well, yeah. And, and I don't mind those. And, and I actually address them. I actually get more hate on Twitter than I do on Instagram. Um, but I, I addressed him and I just said, Hey, um, you know, I, um, you know, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> um, I've never taken, I have, uh, an anxiety disorder. I suffer from depression. 
And I know that messing with my hormones, and I know this because anytime I'm sick, my anxiety flares up like you wouldn't believe. So I know that if I were to go on steroids, my hormones would be all over the place and I wouldn't be able to handle or cope with my anxiety. So I've never taken a steroid. (laughs) Um, Maybe easier if I had, (laughs) but um, I put in a lot of hard work. Um, I am very conscious and I have a body type that's, you know, muscular and whatnot, but I've been working out since I was 12. Oh yeah. Like, like that's, you know, 23 years of daily fitness. I should have a decent body. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, um, uh, more recently I, I posted something about, um, uh, and this one really, um, typically when people say stuff, I know it's predominantly a reflection on where they're at. Um, and maybe, you know, some people who people assume I'm a certain way based off my aesthetic. People mm-hmm. assume that I'm, uh, a privileged white cis male who is only concerned about me and other white cis gay men and it's not true it's not who I am and I'm sorry my aesthetic gives that impression and I'm sorry that people who have a build that may be similar to mine have treated people that way but i I deal with people and support people from every walk of life on a daily basis. And it's part of what I do. I have people reaching out from all over the world every single day. And my aesthetic doesn't define who I am. Just like being a hockey player, I've learned, doesn't define who I am. Just like being gay doesn't define who I am. And... I had somebody say, oh, typical cisgendered white gay man posting. I posted a picture in a tank top that said equal. And he said, calling me a thirst trap and being adored by all the white twink bottoms. (laughs) And I went, well, you don't know my life. You clearly don't know what I am doing for a living. It's not fair, and but I, I messaged this person. I said, feel free to reach out if you want to talk. Because there's obviously more going on there, and there's struggle and oppression that this person's felt, not only from society, but from his own community. Or their own community, I shouldn't gender someone. Um, and I think it's important to open up discussion. So instead of this person lashing out on the internet at somebody who's could be a friend or an ally, you know, they're, they're able to talk through some of their struggle because people Mm -hmm. are struggling. People are struggling so much. And I see it on a daily basis with kids coming to me, but yeah, I, I've become more confident in posting pictures like that. Just they're fun and they're not meant to be, you know, I'm not doing it to be a thirst trap necessarily. I did it kind of more to say hey love who you are love what you look like and and i'm i'm proud of myself for the hard work i've put in 
And you should be. And I love nice. the one, the last one that you did where, uh, and who knows if you'll post more by the time this goes public, but um, the one you just said, I love being gay. I say that in a lot of interviews. Um, I've, my mother would ask me, she's like, why are you always saying you love being gay instead of saying like, oh, I love who I am or I love being myself. And I said, well, there was a gay kid in a small town who's been bullied and alienated and, and he's, you know, either very alternative or artsy or femme or something. And he self-loathes. He hates himself. And he's probably never heard once in his life somebody say, I love being gay. And I do love being gay. I love my culture. I love my people. I love the history and the resilience and the power and the strength it took to get a semblance of equality. And I want to keep pushing that forward and pushing boundaries and breaking down walls in a loving, compassionate manner. And, and having people not only, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to force our way to a table, but I, I want us to be able to sit at that table. Cool. And, and I want people to know why we should be sitting at that table. Because I think once people recognize things more as opposed to just ticking a box, it'll make things better for everyone. So I do love being a gay man. And I think that kids that follow me on Instagram or, or, you know, might come across my page or hear an interview I do. I want them to hear that. I want them to know it. And I want them to learn about their community so they can love who they are and love being gay. Sweet. Let me, um, end this episode with my final 20 questions. That way we yeah. can wrap up. Um, it's just a quick 20 questions. Some are fun. Yeah. Just random. Um, I'll try if... and keep, I'm, I'm a long winded speaker, <laughs> so I'll try and keep it. No worries. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? If I could have a superpower, it would be the ability to be everywhere at once. Okay. So I could go and speak to groups all over and try and create shifts everywhere. Um, do you listen to podcasts? Do you have a favorite podcast? Um, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of sports talk radio. Okay. Um, I do kind of enjoy Katya, Whimsically Volatile is a good one. Um, I want to get into Race Chasers with Willem in Alaska. Um, but um, yeah, I'm not a big podcast. I shouldn't be saying this on a podcast, but I don't no, it's totally to fine. Not everyone does. Yeah. Who was your first celebrity crush? Oh. Well, that's going back. Um, Zach Morris, Say by the Bell. It's probably why my boyfriends have typically been blonde, blue-eyed men. Um, because it was the first man I ever had a crush on. You want to find your own Zach? <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, that's really what I did. And I try to embody his personality. Funny. Yeah. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Nelson Mandela. All right. What what is the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Ooh, interesting thing I've seen is um, like interesting in a positive way or just it, something. 
just something that's popped out to you when I ask the question. It doesn't matter what it is or okay. Or um, I helped somebody who was trying to commit suicide and and um, got them help, and um, that was the most important thing that's happened to me this week. Yeah, that would be for anyone. Wow. I could easily go on that topic for a little bit, but we'll move on. Do you have time for recent, for streaming obsessions? Do you watch anything? What's your recent streaming obsession? I, uh, well, drag race, drag race. Um, I'm a drag race junkie. Um, and, uh, I must've been a drag queen in a past life. Um, uh, Trixie and Katya's, uh, love that. I love fashion photo review. Um, I, I love me anything drag race related. Um, okay. I'm also really into the breakfast club. I, I stream them. I watch them on YouTube most days. Which fictional character would you like to meet in real life? Oh, um, Superman. All right. Superman as Henry Cavill or Superman just in general? I mean, it wouldn't hurt if it was him, but um, I wouldn't complain, but Superman. All right. If animals could talk, which animal would be the most annoying? A donkey, because he's an ass. (laughs) Who inspires you? Youth. Kids inspire me. Kids inspire me because they they want good and they... um, are so true and genuine. All right. What is your favorite word? Fuck. <laughs> or, or that's homophobic. It's my favorite saying. All right. The, the fuck answer might come back in a few questions. What is your least favorite word? Um, moist. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? When I think I can do a project that will have social impact and help kids. Nothing energizes me more. It has, I never thought of myself as a creative person. I thought of myself as this analytical hockey person. Mm-hmm. And, and I've tapped into a whole level of creativity within me to make projects that are going to be coming soon and to speak and to um, engage with people that, I, I always knew I was like semi-charming or whatever, but I didn't know I had this level in me and, and I'm just hitting the surface of it. All right. What turns you off? People who um, create problems in their life when they have none. When, when I have hockey parents who come to me complaining about the most petty things, and I see true oppression and struggle in the world, I just fuck off. Like, you're creating problems for your life. Your life is pretty okay. All right. All right. So what is your favorite curse word? Fuck. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Um, I love the rattling, the shady rattling sound, like snake sound. Oh, da, 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 da. Oh, okay. I lo- that one, and uh, I love my boyfriend's voice when nice. it when I make him laugh. I love his laugh probably more than anything in the world. Nice. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound of hockey parents. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? 
Oh, um, I would. Um, I always wanted at some point to be a general manager of a professional hockey team. Mm-hmm. I could see myself doing it one day. I don't know if I'm going to have the opportunity because my priorities lie elsewhere, but um, mm. I always wanted to do that. Okay. What profession would you not like to do? Um, a pilot. I'm afraid of heights. Or fireman. Fire is not fun. Yeah, that makes sense. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Thank you for caring about my people. Nice. This final question um, goes to why I do this podcast. And honestly, we've talked a lot about it just with your own story with uh, suicide and everything. If you had a chance or, well, you actually do have a chance to talk to 12 year old kids. What's the one thing you could tell them that you've learned throughout your life about their sexuality that can help them the rest of their life? There's this going to be a two part answer. All right. Number one, all kids, whether straight or gay, um, we tend to conform in society. Um, I, I try to have them leave. I say, I don't care if you're paying attention. I don't care if you've paid attention or if you don't like me, if you're homophobic, whatever. Just leave here knowing this. Normal doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. You're all different. You all have different hair color, eye color, body shapes, body sizes, skin color. You'll have different goals, passions, dreams. You have different reasons for being, whether it's in a locker room or in the school, you all have different things you want out of this world. You all have you come from different backgrounds. Normal doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. You're all a bunch of weirdos. And that's a beautiful thing. And then the other thing to queer kids is only you can accept you. Don't seek acceptance outside of yourself. And when you accept yourself, learn to love yourself. And when you love yourself, you can deal with so much more and you'll have so much more strength to empower yourself and live a happy life. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. It's been a fun, fun time talking to you. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's really cool.